Good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. Let me mention a couple of uh, quick things before we get started this morning. Um, this Friday night at, at my house uh, is the college ministry's first official meeting. So if you're college or college age, come to my house Friday at 7. If you need uh, an address, talk to me afterwards. Uh, youth ministry begins this Wednesday, 7 o'clock, right here at this building. That's for anyone in junior high or high school. Uh, come check it out this week, first week of youth ministry for the fall. Membership class. There's a membership class coming up October 7th and 8th. It's a Friday night and a Saturday. We provide a meal Friday evening, two sessions, Saturday morning breakfast, two sessions and lunch. It's a great way to come learn more about GCF in a very non-threatening environment. Um, and that's a couple of weeks. Uh, you need to sign up for that um, in the lobby by clicking on one of the QR codes or just go to our website and sign up there as well. And sign-ups really help so we know how much food to provide for everyone. Uh, lastly, this morning is the last sermon in our Summer Psalms series. It still kind of feels like summer, right? Maybe? Uh, next week we go back to the Gospel of John, uh, John 8, verse 11 through, I think, verse 20. Uh, but this morning is one of my favorite psalms, uh, Psalm 19. And let me pray one more time before we uh, think about the words of Psalm 19. Father, thank you for giving us so many reasons to sing this morning. Father, thank you for giving us a place to meet. Father, thank you most importantly for the words of sacred scripture. They are holy, they are inspired, they are inerrant, they are life-giving, they are all-sufficient. Father, we pray that you would reveal Christ to us as we think about the words of Psalm 19. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 20 years ago, the coworker who was in the cubicle in front of me stood up, turned around, and pointed at me and confidently said, Dave, I would believe in God if he would only speak to me. But because he hasn't spoken to me, I refuse to believe in he or she. Now, my friend Levi was making a great point. If God exists, then surely God would speak to us. And if he hasn't spoken to us, does God actually exist? Levi was raising a very good question. Maybe you've wondered the same thing. If God is real, why won't he just speak to me? This brings us to Psalm 19. According to Psalm 19, God is speaking to all of us all the time. In fact, God's speech is so constant that we have learned to tune it out like young parents tune out fussy children. It just becomes background noise. Well, this morning, we'll look at three aspects of God's speech from Psalm 19. And there's nothing more important in your life this morning than listening to the speech of God. So, what does Psalm 19 tell us about God's speech? First, God speaks clearly through the skies. How? Well, God speaks through the stars. Verse 1 of Psalm 19, the psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens refers to the skies and to the stars of the night sky. And David's point is very simple. The stars speak of the glory, majesty, power, and splendor of God. But what exactly 
do the stars say to us? Well, the stars speak of God's vastness and infinite power. I want to show you a little video I showed a few years ago. Uh, this video is humbling, but watch it carefully. Are you feeling small yet? Just wait. so small, aren't we? The biggest and brightest known star in our own galaxy is named Eta Carinae. It's more than a hundred times larger than the sun. If the sun and Eta Carinae were the same distance from the earth, Eta Carinae would be four million times brighter than the sun. There's a star named IRS 65. Of close, Of course, it's massive with that name. If the sun were 18 inches tall, IRS 65 would be as tall as Mount Everest. If our galaxy, the Milky Way, were the size of North America, our solar system would be a quarter. Astronomers estimate that the Milky Way galaxy contains 100 billion to 400 billion stars. That's just in our teeny, tiny, insignificant galaxy. How many galaxies are there? The lowest estimate now is 100 billion. The highest estimate of galaxies in the known universe is 2 trillion galaxies. 2 trillion. And most of them have over 100 billion stars. Do the math. 100 billion times 2 trillion. That's how many stars there are in the known universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies above proclaim his handiwork. God speaks to us through the distant stars. In addition, God speaks to us through the sun. Look at verse 4 to 6 with me of Psalm 19. In them, that is the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. In comparing the sun to a bridegroom, David marvels at the radiance of the sun. And in comparing the sun to a strong man, David marvels at the tremendous power of the sun. And David is right. Our sun is rather impressive. 99.9% .9 of all matter in our solar system is contained within the sun. Roughly 1.3 million Earths could fit inside of our sun. 
Even though the sun is 93 million miles away, we still have to wear sunglasses and sunscreen to protect ourselves from its powerful rays. One person figured this interesting fact out. I don't know how you figure these things out, but someone figured this out. To produce the observed energy emitted from the sun's solar surface, the equivalent of 100 billion hydrogen bombs must explode every second in its unfathomably hot, dense core. The sun is an incredibly powerful energy-producing machine. It was hot a few weeks ago, over 100 degrees. The sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. One more fun fact. A pinhead, you can keep that in your mind, a little teeny tiny pinhead, heated to the temperature of the center of the sun would emit enough heat to kill anyone who ventured within a thousand miles of it. One little pinhead. The sun speaks of God's splendor and majesty. God speaks to the stars. God speaks through the sun. But who does God speak to? Let's keep reading. Back to Psalm 19, 1 to 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. In verse 1, the verbs declare and proclaim are in the participle form, meaning that creation is constantly, continually proclaiming the glory of its creator. God is constantly speaking to us of his incredible power. Day after day, night after night, they pour forth speech. No one can escape the speech of creation. God is screaming at us. I exist and I am immensely powerful. Now, there have been many great speeches in our nation's history. I think of Patrick Henry's give me liberty or give me death speech, which he proclaimed in 1775 in Virginia. Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was a powerful speech. Ronald Reagan's tear down this wall speech was a very profound speech in 1987. Martin Luther King Jr.'s powerful speech, I Have a Dream, was delivered in 1963 in Washington, D.C. These were all powerful speeches that transformed millions of lives. But the most powerful speech of all time, by far, is God's speech in creation because God is speaking all the time to everyone and no one can avoid hearing this speech. But this leads to an important question. What specifically is God saying to us in his speech? Well, a few things. The skies say that God exists. The skies, the stars, the sun make this obvious for everyone, which is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 14:1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. God. 
Now, the Bible's not saying the fool uh, is stupid. The fool in the Bible, in the wisdom literature, is someone who is morally depraved. The fool knows that God exists, but refuses to acknowledge God's existence. Paul picks up on this in Romans 1, 19 to 20. He says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, everyone, because God has shown it to them. Well, how? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You do not need a PhD in apologetics to defend the faith. All you have to do is look outside and say to your skeptical friend, look at all those stars. Look at the sun. Those things scream that God exists. There is something and not nothing. Because there's something, there must be a creator. Well, maybe your skeptical friend says, well, Dave, what about the Big Bang? Well, Big Bang cosmology clearly teaches that before the Big Bang, there was nothing, no time, no space, and no matter. Therefore, it's logical to deduce that something outside of time and space and matter created all things, which is exactly what Genesis 1-1 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that phrase, heavens and the earth, is a mirrorism. That means God created everything, time and space and matter. Science points towards God, not away from God. The stars and the sun loudly proclaim there is a God and he is incredibly powerful and creative and wise. The skies say that God exists. In addition, the skies say that God is powerful. He spoke literally billions of galaxies into existence out of nothing. How in the world does that work? I have no clue. What is nothing? No thing. It's the thing that rocks think about. Nothing is nothing. And God spoke into nothing. And billions of galaxies leapt into existence. That, my friends, is raw, untamable power. Let me ask you a question. What are you struggling with this week? Anxiety? Jealousy? Envy? Maybe you and your spouse are locked in a conflict and there seems to be no way out. Maybe you have a really rude boss. Maybe you're financially strapped. Maybe you have significant health issues. Is God powerful enough to help you in the midst of your trials? Yes. How do we know? Look out the window and see the stars and the sun. But how often did you and I forget to pause, humble ourselves, and say, God, I need help right now. Help me. Humble myself and admit that I'm wrong to my spouse. Help me, God, to not be anxious. Help me to give this money away. Help me to evangelize this particular person. Give me boldness. Give me courage. Help me be content. God has the power to help you with whatever it is you're dealing with. 
The skies say that God exists. The skies say that God is powerful. And the skies say that you and I are infinitesimally small. This is not self-esteem Sunday, sorry. The size of the universe reminds us that we are seemingly insignificant. We live on a teeny tiny pale blue dot in an incomprehensibly vast universe. Show this picture for me, please. Can you even see it is the question. If you can see the pale blue dot, raise your hand. Okay? There it is. That's where you live. Okay, now when this image first appeared in 1990, it sobered the world. This picture was taken from 3.7 billion miles away from planet Earth, taken by the Voyager 1 space probe. And before this image, no one had ever seen planet Earth from this perspective before. Reflecting on this pale blue dot, Carl Sagan wrote these famous words. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it. Everyone you love. Everyone you know. Everyone you've ever heard of. Every human being who ever was lived out their lives there. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived here. On a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Sagan is right. We seem incredibly small and insignificant, and we think we are so great and grand and special. And there we are, living on a pale blue dot in a vast universe. But Sagan's wrong. You and I do have value because you and I, amazingly, are made in God's image. Furthermore, you and I know we have value because the God who spoke the universe into existence by the power of his word out of nothing, ex nihilo, sent his own son to that pale blue dot to live, to suffer, and to die for you, yes, you, individual. The God who spoke the cosmos into existence sent his son to suffer and die, not just for the vast glob of humanity, but for individual sinners. And when Jesus died, 
He had your name and your sins on his mind. Amazingly, you and I do matter to God. We're made in his image, and he sent his son to rescue us. Nonetheless, that pale blue dot does put all of life into perspective. We spent so much time and effort and energy wondering, what does this person think of me? Do they like me? Do they respect me? Do they worship me? And those people are just specks of cosmic dust. Yet we spend so much time anxious about the opinions of others. We shouldn't fear others. We should fear God. We can be thankful that God speaks to us in the skies. But God's speech in the skies is not enough to save us. That brings us to the second point. First, God speaks to the skies. Second, God speaks through the scriptures. But why should you and I listen to what God has to say to us through the scriptures? Well, the psalmist gives us several reasons. For instance, the scriptures speak much more personally or clearly than the skies. In verses 1 to 4 of Psalm 19, uh, the word for God is the word Elohim. It's used several times. And that word for God highlights God's power in creation. But then, in verses 7 to 11, the word for God is the word Yahweh. That's used seven times. And that word is a much more personal name for God. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. That name Yahweh indicates that God wants relationship with us. And we can only learn about how that's possible through the sacred scriptures. In other words, the stars and the skies and the lakes and the trees and the mountains can tell us that God's immensely powerful. That's called general revelation. But the stars in the skies cannot tell us that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. That knowledge only comes to us through the scriptures. The scriptures speak more personally or more clearly than the skies. In addition, the scriptures revive the soul. Now, the psalmist is gonna use the word law a lot here in a moment. That word law is just another word for or name for the Old Testament scriptures. 19.7, the law of the Lord, the scriptures, is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord revives us, strengthens us. In addition, the scriptures make us wise. Verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord, or Yahweh, is sure, making wise the simple. The scriptures bring joy to our hearts. Verse eight, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The scriptures bring illumination. Verse 8, again, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In addition, the scriptures help us fear God, and the fear of God is a good thing. 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous. The scriptures are trustworthy. Again, verse nine, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true. The scriptures are true and righteous altogether. The Bible is without error in all that it affirms to be true. But Dave, isn't the Bible full of errors? Whenever I hear that, I ask the question, where are they? Let's talk about them. Let's discuss them together. Show me where the errors are. They're not there. 
There may appear to be contradictions upon first blush, but those have been there for thousands of years, and there's good explanations for all of them. The scriptures are also more valuable than gold. Think of a massive pile of money, a massive pile of gold and diamonds and silver. Would you rather have that or the scriptures? I know we're in church, you're supposed to say the scriptures. But you're all tempted, aren't you, to think, I'd rather have that massive pile of money, honestly. But what does the psalmist say inspired by the Holy Spirit? Verse 10, more to be desired are they, the scriptures, than gold, even much fine gold, even billions of dollars. The scriptures are sweeter than honey. 1910, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Honey was the sweetest food in the ancient Near East. The scriptures are sweet for our souls. The scriptures warn us from danger. Verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned and in keeping them there is great reward. The scriptures warn us from things that destroy our lives and ruin our joy. And in, in obeying the scriptures, there is not just a little reward, but the psalmist says, there is great reward. The psalmist just laid out 11 benefits of scripture, 11 reasons why you and I should listen to the voice of God in scripture. The question is, do we really believe in all those benefits? And if we do, we will throw ourselves into Bible reading. But the problem is, often we don't actually believe what we believe about the scriptures. But if we do, we'll act. We have five boys. Right now, a couple of our boys love video games. And they will do whatever is required to play video games. And so we have a series of jobs they can do to earn what we call media time or video game time. So one of the jobs is called just the rock job. And the rock job is they have to go in the front yard and backyard and grab all the rocks in the grass and throw them back in the rock piles. The other job, um, their favorite this summer, uh, was the cherry job. We have a huge cherry tree in our front yard. All the cherries are rotten. They fall to the ground. Bees swarm around them. It's gross. It's sticky. It's dirty. But if they pick a cup of cherries, they get a half hour of video game time. Or they can vacuum the entire house for a half hour of video game time. My boy said to me, Dad, we'll clean the whole house for an hour of video games. And I say, awesome, <laughs> go do it. If they read a 200-page book, they get an hour of video game times. My favorite this summer, was, this was a new one. Uh, this is my wife's brilliant idea. Um, there's a track at Mead about five minutes from our house. Uh, and if they go to Mead and run four laps around the track, they get a half hour of video game time. Kids, aren't you glad you're not in my family? <laughs> Why do my boys eagerly do these things? With joy. Running around the track at me, sweating, 95 degrees. Why do they do that? Because they believe that if they do that, they will get a half hour 
of Halo <laughs> or Apex Legends, both video games, parents. They really believe that in doing those things, there's going to be some reward or benefit. So I don't have to make them do those things. They do those things voluntarily and freely. And our house gets really clean in the process. If we really believe, I mean really believe, that there is tremendous benefit in reading the Bible, we're going to read it, aren't we? No one's going to force us to read the Bible. So really the issue is the issue of desire or faith. I often pray, God, right now I don't feel like reading the Bible. Would you change my heart and help me believe that the Bible is reliable, trustworthy, true, and life-giving? With that said, here's some practical advice. Set modest goals for Bible reading. If you don't read it all, Right now, start by reading a chapter a day. That'll take you seven minutes, five minutes a day. When it comes to family worship, dads, have a goal of reading the Bible to your family five times a week, a chapter a day. And, and I, this just came back in stock. I've mentioned this book last week, and it was, all 10 copies were gone in like three seconds. I think we have 20 copies now. This is a superb resource. It's called the Family Worship Bible Guide, and like I mentioned a few weeks ago, maybe it was last week, this book, for every chapter of the Bible, gives you a paragraph summary and a paragraph of application. Dads, all you have to do, this is not rocket science, open the Bible, read a chapter. If you think, what should I say about this chapter? Open this. Read a paragraph out loud, and then read the next paragraph and ask some questions. Kids, what does this mean? How does it apply to our lives? That'll take about 10 minutes, but it'll reap incredible rewards in your family because dads especially, if you do this imperfectly, your kids will realize that their dad loves the Bible. Private school is helpful Homeschooling is great, but dads, you can have your kids do all those things. And if they see you neglecting the scriptures, none of those things are gonna matter. What really matters, dads, is your kids seeing you value God's word. God has given dads a, a, a disproportional amount of influence in their families. There's two commands in the Bible for parents to teach their kids, and they're both addressed to dads. Moms, you are really important too. And moms, you can do this as well. Both of you guys should do this. But kids need to see their dads valuing the Bible. Okay, I'm off that little soapbox for now. But get this book. It's, it'll really help you practically uh, think through how to do family worship. Well, what gets in the way of Scripture reading? Social media, Netflix, Amazon Prime, golf, underwater basket weaving, reading novels. I don't know what it is in your life that distracts you from reading God's word. But whatever it is, if you value it more than scripture, you need to stop and repent. And say, God, please forgive me for valuing whatever it is more than your words. And would you please change my heart, God? 
Help me value the scriptures. Change looks like repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repeat, repeat, repeat. The whole life is repentance. God, forgive me. Help me change. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. Here's the bottom line. Do you want to be happy and content and filled with joy and peace? Of course, the answer is a resounding yes. Happiness only comes in this life through relationship with God. Happiness comes as we increasingly see in the scriptures the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you're not taking the time to read the Bible, to hear from Jesus, to relate to him through his words, you're not going to experience the joy of knowing him. But if you really believe that joy is found in the scriptures, you're going to read the Bible and pray. Now with all that said, let me remind us, that although Bible reading is beneficial, it's the source of all joy. Reading your Bible and praying is not what makes you righteous with God. You are made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, which brings us to the third and final point. God speaks through the skies. God speaks through the scriptures. And God speaks about his son. Well, what does he say about his son? Well, God speaks in the scriptures about the need for his son. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me of Psalm 19. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. God's speech through the Son reaches into every crevice of creation. In a similar sense, God's speech through the scriptures reaches into every single crack and crevice of our lives to convict us of sin, to reveal to us our great need for his son. In these three verses, we, or two verses, we learn that we need a redeemer. Verse 12a, we become aware of our errors through the scriptures. Verse 12b, we admit that we have hidden sins that we may not even be aware of. That comes through the scriptures. Verse 13, we are aware that we sometimes sin presumptuously or arrogantly, even becoming enslaved. And all that's revealed to you and I as we spend time listening to God's speech through the scriptures. We are not perfect. All of us have sinned, and the scriptures make that abundantly clear, especially the more you read them. We need a redeemer. God speaks about the need of his son. In addition... God speaks in the scriptures about the nature of his son. It's easy to miss this in verse 14, but clearly here we read about God's desire to bring salvation to those who break the commands of scripture. Verse 14, the psalmist writes, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight O oh Lord, O oh Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. God's word cuts deep. 
God's word reveals to us that we need someone to come and redeem us. That is, free us from slavery to sin. We sin every day in thought, word, and deed. And the very last word in Psalm 19 is a word of hope. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist who wrote this knew that he needed someone to redeem him from all the sins and failures. And a thousand years later, the Redeemer came. King David's great, 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 great grandson who became the rock and the Redeemer. He would commit no errors, verse 12. He would have no hidden sins, verse 12. He would never sin presumptuously, verse 13. He would always be blameless and innocent, verse 13. The words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart would always be acceptable in God's sight. This Redeemer, Jesus, always, always, always listened to God's voice in the skies and in the scriptures. Jesus was a Psalm 1 man. He meditated on God's word day and night. He was constantly listening to and obeying the voice of his father in the scriptures. Why? He was earning for you and I a perfect record of law-keeping. Jesus always obeyed because you and I rarely, if ever, obey like we should. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, suffered and died on the cross, and rose from the grave to redeem us. That is, he frees us. That word redeem means to free. And so often you and I feel like we are enslaved to lust and envy and greed, grumbling, complaining, Jesus came to redeem us. He came to free us. We often feel, when it comes to Bible reading, like we are enslaved to sloth or enslaved to distraction or idolatry. Jesus came to free us. He forgives all of our sin, breaks the power of sin in us, and frees us to love and serve him and to listen to his voice in the scriptures. So if you're sitting there this morning feeling like you have failed miserably to listen to God's voice in the scriptures, there's hope. Christ forgives and he forgives and he forgives and he forgives. And he gives grace and strength to the humble. Those that say, God, forgive me and help me to listen more carefully and more consistently to your voice in the skies and in the scriptures. Well, back to my friend Levi at State Farm Insurance. He said, Dave, I'd believe in God if he simply spoke to me. God is speaking to everyone, everywhere. God is speaking through supernovas, distant galaxies, black holes, Jupiter, Uranus, and our sun. And God is speaking even more clearly in the sacred 
scriptures. And all that speech is directing you and I to Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Have you heard his voice? And have you responded appropriately? If not, why not respond this morning? Let's pray.